Peace, everyone. Welcome to another wonderful episode of the Dear New Me Show. Now, in today's episode, we are talking to Chris Martin. He is the owner of Hempful Farms. He is the author of One Life, the Chris Martin Story, and he is a medical marijuana activist. He's going to be speaking to us about possibly facing 120 years in prison, writing his book from his cell, and also how he healed his Crohn's disease with cannabis. I think that he's probably one of the most interesting people that I had the opportunity to interview. His story left me speechless, and I think that it's probably going to leave you speechless too. I read his book. It is powerful, and everything about this man is very inspiring. And once again, like all of our episodes, this is ad-free thanks to you who support Raw Yogi. It is an awesome company, and you guys are awesome for supporting it i thank you thank you thank you let's get to the episode you're listening to the dear new me show a podcast aimed at helping people gather great tools to become better versions of themselves i'm your host nehemiah director entrepreneur vegan and a bunch of other stuff that doesn't even matter it's at the end of the day it really is all about you I sit down with inspiring individuals, talk to them about their journeys, habits, and some of the tools that they use to become better versions of themselves. Hope you enjoy. We are live. Not live, but we are on. (laughs) Feels live. Chris Martin. What's going on, man? Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. How can I not have you? (laughs) Let's look at our table right here. How can I look at all this stuff that you've brought? How can I not have you? You are involved in so much stuff, and I actually just want to dive right to the book absolutely because i'm sitting here and i'm like this is him he has his own book how did that happen well we'd have to take it back a little bit okay to the book is kind of the the ending or the result of a a crazy ride Mm. um in 2007 i was diagnosed with crohn's Uh, as a young kid growing up in group homes and foster homes i'd always been misdiagnosed with ulcers or or other um, you see issues and it turns out it was Crohn's. So, um, I was put on heavy narcotics right away, Humira, balasalicide, um, things that are all pre-op before they go in and, and remove the infected areas. And, uh, I'd always been a cannabis user. I mean, we were potheads back then. I, we didn't know what cannabis meant. Um, I just, you know, did what we all did and what my parents grew, um, if you burned yourself in my house, uh, mom gave you a salve or a lotion. You know, we, we didn't know it was bad. We didn't know it was illegal, but we knew it was made with the plant. So coming out here, moving west, you just assume a little more liberal, you know, accepting. And I came out here to play college baseball in uh, 1995 and got caught with a joint in my dorm room mm. and was sentenced to three years in prison because of my, my childhood and my upbringing. It was an easy target. For for me to go to prison, I had nowhere to parole to or probate to. So the judge said, you know, we're going to just put you back in the system that you seem to like. And that's what happened. So from that point on, uh, I had 20 years of no trouble, no no police, uh, you know, to really speak of until I started my edible company in 2010 when we went legal here in Arizona. My wife and I became caregiver growers and uh, we've quickly learned the ambiguity in the laws here in Arizona that as caregivers you're allowed to grow x amount and have x amount but per your license you're only allowed to hold x amount so we were instantly thrown into a jeopardy situation where 
25 plants yields 25 pounds, yet we're only allowed five ounces between the two of us. So we didn't want to become, you know, drug dealers per se. We wanted to keep the medicine in the family and really get it out to the people that needed it. So I created Zonka. Um, literally, we sat around a table a lot like this and we were smoking a bowl and I had a sweet tart wrapper off of a Zonka label or a Wonka label and I had torn it when I opened it and it had caused the W to deform. And when I put, tried to put the label back together, the W looked like a Z. And right then I said, wait a minute, we've got our edible line. And wow. the next day I was at Michael's buying sucker molds and making suckers in my living room. So about six months in, we, we got popular really fast. We were the first edible company on the market. Well, not much of a market to be on, but we were, we were out there. We were donating to collectives and anyone, anyone who could get it, anyone I, that had a card I could donate it to and not be, well, I say that with the card, but if you were sick, I was giving it to you. That's why I went to prison. And, um, when I was, I was raided in 2012 because I decided to partner with someone who I thought would take my brand to the next level. I just lack what everyone lacks, that little bit of capital that gives you that push over the top. Great idea with no money pushing it. So I met a guy named Todd James uh, at an event that was like one of the first um, cannabis uh, product events where we were just really showcasing product. And a gentleman uh, approached me who said he had an investor. And he said, you know, your branding's on point. I love your products already. Let's get this, this guy involved. And that guy was Todd. Uh, we sat down and we chatted. Sound like a great idea of him putting some money forth. And uh, me just being a young entrepreneur that wanted to get involved and, and make sure I had the funding to do it correctly, I put my head down and went to work. And I didn't, I didn't check the guy out. I didn't do due diligence with him. And he was in extorting our company. Essentially, as I would make a thousand products a day, I would miss two or three hundred of them out the back door. So as I start to question these things, especially financially at the bottom, at the at the end of the day and the bottom line, he'd never have a good answer of where my product was going other than, hey, I'm consigning it to all the new dispensaries as they open. So once they get their net 30, net 60, you'll get paid. You know, it sounds reasonable. We're brand new. I want to be the pioneer and the first one on the shelf. So I buy it. Four months later, we get raided. Um, I, this, this guy had taken an email that we had received a couple times that we could tell was law enforcement. You could just tell. They're very matter of fact. They don't know what they're talking about, and they want to trap you into answering things illegally. So I took the email, and I showed my partner, look, man, this is the stuff that I'm trying to avoid. I've already been to prison for a joint when I went to college. They're looking at us. We want to do this legally. You know, I don't have any time to give this state. You know, this, this time is mine. So I was very adamant about my lawyer, my accountant, my my people being involved. And the minute he said that there was a problem with any of them being involved, I knew that there was a takeover happening. I confronted him, and within a matter of 72 hours, my house had been raided. Uh, both my houses, both of my clubhouses, my kitchen, every property I owned had got raided at one what? time. Half a million dollar raid took place. My kids were involved, gunpoint. Uh, they followed us from my house to their school, hit us with ghillie suits and tanks and all over a, a license that I was given by the state to grow. That's why we had a really hard time with it. Uh, they wanted to use the fact that I was the president of a motorcycle club as gang-related enhancements so to, to bring in the feds or RICO me. And the problem is, is the cops that raided me were all in a club. 
they were all in a club called the Iron Brotherhood. So as they're raiding me, blaming me, pointing fingers at me for being a gang member and, a, and, and this guy breaking the rules, I'm really just a guy that houses members that were part of a veteran group that wanted to ride. And they didn't want to join 1% clubs or these other types of clubs. They wanted to join a family club. So that's what we did. We just felt like it was a little bit of security that we had that we wouldn't get affected by larger clubs that we would be left alone and be able to ride. We had no clue that the police were going to be the ones mm. threatening us. We thought it would come from another area. So as we get through court and we're fighting this case, that's when I find out about the police. Uh, six months after my raid, to the day, there was a fight in a bar on Whiskey Row. I had a potential prospect, a guy who wanted to join my club, in a bar downtown. Uh, Whiskey Row in Prescott, if you're a club member, everyone knows you're not allowed to wear your colors in the bar. It's a, it's a mandate. It's a city ordinance. Well, the police had actually um, booked a Christmas party at one of the bars. So they're there in their colors with their badges and their weapons serving two masters or whatever it is they're doing, and they start bullying the patrons. Being, getting drunk, being loud, and they were asked to leave Jersey Lilies, the bar that they were in. So they went down to Matt's, and they got thrown out, went down to the next bar, got thrown out. Uh, finally, they enter into Moctezuma as one of the younger bars, the, the, guy, the like college-oriented bars, and that's where one of my potential prospects was. He recognized the cops, and he, he knew that, wait a minute, these guys are officers. Why are they in colors? And he wants to earn his pass. He wants to get into the club. So he felt like confronting them would be the way to do that. He didn't even ask or tell us. He just confronted them. Uh, they attacked him. They beat him up on camera, breaking his nose and giving him stitches. What? My buddy owned the bar, sent me the video, called me and said, hey, you want to see this. And the more we dug, you know, the, the police that were in uniform that were called to the scene were actually told to leave by the gang member police. So they tried to cover this whole thing up. Wow. So I went from looking at 127 years in my case, in my trial, to submitting this evidence to the state and to my attorney with a private detective, showing the, the crookedness involved. And I was, in essence, given a two-year plea what? after three and a half years. So, and me, not wanting to take that plea and not wanting to assume guilt for anything, um, I said no. I threw the the paper onto the floor and said, I'm not taking this. And my lawyer asked for time. We went out to the hallway and he was in tears. He's like, Chris, you don't understand how this goes. They're, they're waving the white flag. They're conceding. They're showing you that, that you won. Take your two years, go home, write your book, do your, you know, build your story and your brand, come home to your family. Because if you don't and you go to trial and you lose, you're not going to come home. So that was my option. I had to either take the plea and admit to something that I had nothing to do with and go to jail or not and fight it and go to prison forever and not come home. So my wife and I, for the three and a half years we fought the case, that's where we opened the cafe and mm. built the hemp brand out of legality and necessity. But then I, I also I, I, I wrote my book. I felt like if, if I go to prison... And because of everything that's going on around the case, if something were to happen to me, nobody would know. My house burns down and my brakes get cut and an accident happens. Nobody knows why or really cares. And it's it's twofold, too, because now I have kids. And with Crohn's in prison and sick and no meds and terrible food, you're probably not going to do very well. You're going to get sick. So I wanted this to be my legacy. I wanted this to be the message to my children. Like, you know, I fought no matter what. 
I did not quit. This time is not in vain. And it was, uh, lastly, it was counseling. It was my way of taking those 23 and a half hours a day that you're locked in a cage like an animal and bringing a little bit of normalcy, a little bit of counseling, a little bit of relief, getting that off your chest. Um, because it's a lot. It's a lot that I didn't think anybody would even want to hear, you know, much less publish. <laughs> mm. So to to actually see it on paper and to actually get emails back from it now about, hey, you know, that's the motivation I've been looking for or, you know, the, it just shows me that all that time was not in vain, that it, it meant something and, and now there's a purpose that's come out of it. I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hear stories all the time, and I thought that mine was crazy, but that's crazy. So you do three years for a joint. Yes, sir. And then you come back and then go to the to the weed industry. Yeah. You weren't scared at all a little bit about entering the cannabis industry after you had lost three years to it? You know, after 40 placements and group homes as a kid, you take that fear and you turn it into passion and drive. That's what keeps you alive. You know, um, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to destroy you and kill you and you're not going to survive it or you're going to end up way messed up or you're going to turn it into a passion. I mean, I don't know. I I always tell everyone I was just too dumb to quit. You know, most people just give up or change or do something else. And me, I, I don't know. I've always been challenged with something, whether it be mom my mom hitting me or my dad not wanting to be around or whatever the case may be. Mm. There's always been that challenge. I just don't dwell on it. I don't sit around and go, Oh, poor me. That's what happened. Why? That's just waste of time. That's time that I I've blown fixing things and showing people that uh, there's no reason to kick back over that. You know, I've had two dear, dear friends of mine pass away to suicide mm. and I've never been able to understand and I'll never take away what went on in their minds. I, and I pray for them every day. But for me, you know, the reasons that both do it are still questioned. But I look in the mirror every day. I look back and I see, I see all the things that I've done and been through. And Only one moment in 40 years that I ever have that kind of a thought process. And when I put it out in the, the universe that that was my thought process, that that's the direction I was going, I was quickly stopped. Mm. Immediately stopped. I mean, I, I don't come from a huge religious background. Nor did I ever think that I would. But this whole book and this whole walk, my testimony comes from it. Living in group homes, you see crazy stuff, man. Uh, Baptist reverends who rape kids and Methodist pastors who molest their wives and just things that you don't want to be a part of. Things that push me away from religion and and spirituality and all the, the, the things that come with that. So I felt like I, at the time, I felt like I was uh, avoiding a problem. Once I hit jail, you know, being the president of a club, you've got a certain amount of power. And I don't mean physical. I mean uh, the, the power to change people's lives, uh, the power to help grown men be grown men. You know, I taught ABCs and how to write a check to some guys. I helped pay rent. I, that's why we did the club, out of family, out of camaraderie. You know, when I, when I landed on the yard, um, that's not there. You know, you're in prison. You're, the, you're, you're alone. Mm-hmm. It's immediate. I knew the only way to survive that was program. You know, and I don't mean prison program. I mean internal program, self program. The only way I could do that is with a higher power, and I didn't have that before ever. Um, my story really starts in county jail. Uh, I, most people think it starts with the raid, and for me, you know, the raid is part of the life. 
The raid was part of the, the club life, part of the cannabis life that we live in that gray area. Those are the things that could happen. You're always aware. The walk and the testimony weren't. When, when I landed in jail, I was faced with so many different choices that I had never been a part of before. You know, um, I, I'm used to having a group support me and always have my club, my family, someone around me, my business colleagues. Jail's not like that. It's you figure it out and you know yeah you got the racial divides and all that superficial propaganda that's pushed by the jail anyway but that's not who you are so you have to figure you out real quick as soon as i landed in jail you know how it is old country song played backwards you lost everything your wife your kids your your club your everything and then i meet a guy named jim wassell who i mentioned in the book jim comes in he's an older guy uh my job in the in the and the dorm is to pretty much make sure everybody's good that comes in. You know, I walk up, I shake his hand, and as soon as I did, it was just chills. Like, woo, good guy. Don't know why. Didn't know him from anybody. About five minutes goes by of him and I just superficially introducing ourselves without giving up too much intel. We don't know each other. Um, and within a matter of those five minutes, he comes out with a piece of paper, and at the top of it, it says the prophecy. And immediately I laugh. I'm like, oh, wait, it took me to go to county jail to meet a prophet. This is awesome. And finally, my whole life, I, it took Camp Verde jail to meet a prophet. So, you know me, I'm just being the sarcastic guy that's really not into the church thing. And uh, he opens it up, and the first verse was Jeremiah 29, 11. Well, I was married on 11, 11, 11. Mm. Twice a day, I look at the clock. It's 11, 11 and 2:22. So that's been my life. I don't know why. Didn't mean anything at this very moment, but he explains it to me. You know, as I, I point at it, he reads the verse to me about uh, God knowing his plans for you when you don't. And I kind of sat there like, that's different. That's okay. That's cool. Thank you. And then the next verse was Isaiah 41.30. He who turns his eyes to God will fly on the wings of eagles. Well, I got chills all over immediately when he read it because I was the president of the Desert Eagles. And I have a huge eagle tattoo on my bicep, which he couldn't see. But the correlation with the eagle and the verse, yeah, just automatic. But I'm still not sold, and I'm not going to go sell Bibles for a living now because you've made a correlation with some numbers. I literally just kind of set it on the table and said, thanks for sharing, and I walked away. A couple more minutes goes by. He walks up behind me, and he hands me the book. He's like, this is brand new. I know it's weird. I've only done this for seven months myself. It's new to me. He's a recovering drug addict and drug dealer. So this is all a new walk for him, according to him. He hands me the book, and he says, look, flip it open. Point. If it has nothing to do with anything I've told you today, you can beat me up. You can throw it in the garbage. You can do whatever you feel necessary. And he left. And I'm just, I literally, I, it was like a standoff. I set it on my bunk, and I sat on the toilet, and I stared at it. I was waiting for it to catch on fire or jump off the bed, or I don't know what I thought it was going to do. I literally just sat there looking at it, looking at the ceiling, going, Why now? I've been asking you for help for 40 years. Why now? What, what, what is this happening now for? And I really didn't take it serious at all. I grabbed the book. I said, what the hell? I picked it up. I flipped it open. And I pointed to Jeremiah 29, 11. I set the book back down. And I sat on the toilet seat with chills and starting to get a little teary-eyed and kind of welled up in my chest like, man, I've never even opened that book, so I couldn't tell you where Jeremiah verse is. So I grabbed the book. I flipped it open. It was Isaiah 41, 30. 
dead knows. And these pages aren't tabbed. They're not. It's a brand new book. I threw the book across the room. I'm crying. I have snot bubbles coming out of my nose. I'm lost. I'm confused. I don't really understand why this is happening. And I wanted to go punch the guy. Like, I really <laughs> did not want to be here anymore. He came in, put his hand on my shoulder, and he prayed. He started praying. And it was the weirdest in tongues kind of praying stuff that I didn't know anything about. And I almost ran out of there, but something kept me grounded. Something in my chest I felt pulling, just like physically pulling me. I fought it. I pushed him out. The next morning I woke up and I had this draw in my chest, like go wake him up, ask him questions, find out what he's doing. And I did. And I spent the next eight days really just grilling this guy like, why? Read to me, show me, tell me, teach me. And he explained so many things, you know, beginning to end, what he could in those eight days, whether it be synchronicity or the numbers that I'm seeing, everything he just tried to make sense out of it. And then at the end of the day, he just said, look, man, when it's bigger than you, you need to give it up. When you can't carry it and it's too much for you, give it to him. It means French to me. I don't, I don't know what you're saying. I'm the president of a club. Like we deal with stuff at the table or in the alley. Like that's how I know how to do this. So the next that that night we had a Bible study and I I didn't really get into the Bible study I just was there I just hung out because I'm still not like I'm not trying to go join Joe that Joel guy on TV I'm just like figuring this out but each night two more guys two more guys two more guys and by this last night before my court hearing the next day there was all but two guys at the at the Bible study Jim comes up to me and goes Chris you know that you're a leader of men right. You're president of a club, you're quarterback in college, you pitched in high school. I mean, you've always been a leader. It's time for you to lead in another direction, don't you think? And I'm looking at Jim going, Jim, I'm not a preacher, bro. If that's what you're trying to tell me, like, I'm not going to go preaching. This is not my get down. I, I just, I knew there was a, a pull for something, but I'm, I'm so new at this, I'm lost. So Jim says, look, man, this is how it's going to go. I prayed for you. I got told your bond hearing is going to get lowered. And you're going to go home tomorrow morning. I'm so full of emotion, raw emotion, no food, no meds, just pissed off. I haven't seen my family. I grabbed him by his nuts in his throat and I slammed him up against the wall in my cell. I said, I don't think you understand how I made president of this club, do you? It wasn't by vote. I earned my shit. If you're playing with me and I walk all the way over that courtroom and they don't tell me anything that you're trying to confirm with me, I'm going to suggest you move. You're not going to want to live in this little cage with me. I'm going to be a mean, mean man. And within a matter of 10 seconds, literally 10 seconds, I felt it. This humbleness, embarrassment came over me where I was like, man, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have put my hands on you. You're only trying to help me. It's all positive and love coming from you. I'm straightening this shirt and trying to stand him back up. I felt horrible. I don't know why. That's not me. I would never feel horrible about that. Normally, I'd shove his face in the wall and say, get out of here. But instantly, I was just like, man, I'm so sorry. I'm full of guilt right now. Like... He leaves the room. The next morning at 7-11, they called me out for my bond hearing. I walk out. I look up. Jim's standing there, and he just smiles. Sure enough, I get over to the court, and they lowered my bond. Mm -hmm. I walk up. I'm standing at the, the altar, and I hear Jim telling me, it's bigger, man. It's bigger than you. Give it to him. I heard the state and the judge arguing about CPS taking my kids. And this is a week and a half after the raid. So why now? So my club, they're there. They run out of the courtroom to go get my kids out of school. And I felt like I was going to pass out. I literally felt so overwhelmed with emotion, illness, stress, all at once. I, was, I felt like I was going to black out, you know. And 
I look. I remember looking into the lights, and I grabbed my belly chain, and I said, "You know what, man? If you're real, show me. If you're real, you'll have a warrior. I'll be the the most loyal follower you'll have." And before I even said amen, they lowered my bond to fifty grand. I had been bailed out that evening. When I got back to the cell, I was waiting for Jim to be sitting there, kind of smug or arrogantly saying, "I told you so." And he was really just sitting there, like, "Well." Are you going to share? And when I told him, he just started to cry. Like, like he couldn't believe that it was real, just like I couldn't believe it was real. That's when I recognized with him, like, he's learning this with me. Like, he's not convincing me. We're learning it. So he gave me a piece of paper, and he said, you're going to go home today, and I want you to join this church. And I was totally like, you're crazy, bro. Like, that's not going to happen. I got the number. I got all this info. And I spent three days thinking about it. You know, I'm facing life in court. I'm in a motorcycle club, which isn't going to help me in court at all whatsoever. Or I could take this other path, which might help me a little bit. But I got to tell my club. So I went and told my club I was leaving them to join a church. Mm. That flew over like a fart in church. They thought I was a snitch. They thought, I mean, I couldn't even tell you what those guys thought. But I'm sure probably the same thing I trained them to think for four years if anybody else would have said it to me. But I felt in my heart that it was right. I felt in my soul that it was the draw and the walk that I was asked to be on. And I did. I left the club. Um, we, I went to this church against my, my better judgment, and I poured my life into it. I became the chef. I became the, the pastor's chef. I did all the men's lunches and breakfast. My wife ran. The, she was a janitor who cleaned the whole building. My kids ran YF. Like We dedicated our souls because I felt like that was the message that I was given. Well, about six months in, we've brought 40 of my friends and ex-club members that have all walked with me, and this church is like blown away. we got all these big biker guys here. They love God, and oh my goodness, we've changed all these people. Let us change you and put me and these guys on stage, almost like as an example. Well, then the elders approached me and said, you use cannabis, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. I have Crohn's. They said, well, because of the sacrament you choose, you cannot attend this church anymore. And literally, I'm like... So you're telling me my family can fight for this country. I can vote. I can go to war. I can drink. I can do all these things that I can't. But I can't sit in here and pray because I use cannabis so I don't throw up everywhere. He said, exactly. That's exactly what I'm telling you. That's a sacrament that we don't approve of, even though I'm trying to go through the book and point areas where it could be conceived as... <laughs> seed-bearing plants healing nations. Well, they uh, forced us out. So that's the one time in my life where that suicide thing stepped up because I'm looking at life. I just not only lost my family and my life because of what I chose to do in the cannabis industry, but now I lost my church. Mm. I've lost my faith. I've lost the one dude that I trusted, that I gave my word to, and I, I turned my back on everybody else to do it. Is he letting me down now? So I'm sitting at home. My wife had to go back to work. My kids are at school. And literally, I don't think I've ever been at rock bottom before. Not even after the raid. Not even after the club. I'm sitting in my house and it's quiet. There's nobody there. And it's hitting me 127 years. 127 years. It just keeps echoing in my head. Like I'm not coming home. My first thought was start the truck. Leave it running in the garage and just go to sleep. Maybe your kids will get some type of insurance or some type of way that they can move on and, and let go and realize that they don't have to carry this burden with you anymore. 
And that hurts so bad. Just the thought of that. Like, that's not me. That's not who I am. It's not who I taught my kids to be. So I slammed my hand down on the on my desk and it hit my laptop and I'm screaming like, you asshole, I trusted you. What did I do wrong? And I'm sure if the neighbors were watching or if my wife walked in, I'd look like a crazy guy. But as soon as I hit the computer, uh, advertisement popped up and it was a split screen. And on one side, it was two, two, two serious radio station. And the twos hit me. I see two, two, two twice a day on the clock. And I didn't know what it meant, but it means something. And on the next side of the page was Revelations 22.2, a message from Calvary Church, just like a, an excerpt from the, the Bible. So I'm like, uh, you know, I'm still new in my walk, but I know Genesis is in the beginning and Revelations is in the end. So I grab the book, I flip it open, Revelations 22.2 says, I give to you all seed-bearing plants to heal all nations. And literally, I was not sad at all anymore. It's almost like... He answered me again, telling me, like, you're doing the work, brother. You're doing it. It's not always going to be fun and easy. Sometimes you're going to have some trials and tribulations. Look at my boy. You know, and that's really what I took away from it was, man, the, he, he answers. He does give you those answers if you're willing to hear them. Mm -hmm. And it just taught me that that spirituality was so important, so necessary. That's what the book came from. So you're sitting, you're sitting in prison and... Someone wronged you who you trusted. You're facing 120 years, and you decide to write this book. Are you fuming? Is this book yeah. just like a bunch of fucking mother, <laughs> yeah. mother, yes. is it like yes. pure anger and like, like what is what is the energy in, in, behind it? Once I was sentenced, we had a unique little ex, uh, experience in court. So I had a lot of people in court support, and that's rare. And that's why I'm such a big advocate now. If, you, if anyone knows me, they'll see I donate money. I visit people. I, I send coloring books. I, I mean, anything I can do to help complete strangers that are stuck in a spot, I'm going to do it because I get it. When I got sentenced, I had over 100 people in court support, 80 of which I didn't know. I didn't even know they were there. The judge stood up and said, um, are all of you here for Mr. Martin? Please stand up. When I heard the room move, I turned and looked over my shoulder and was just humbled. Just like, man, who do you feel sorrier for? Me going to prison or all the guys that came to watch? And I was just I was just humbled. I realized that this walk and this message and momentum was bigger than me. It was a lot bigger than just my one story. So the judge sentenced me to two years and said that I was allowed to say goodbye to everybody. And that's just doesn't happen. That's so rare. So literally, one by one, I could shake hands and hug every single person that came to wow. support us, which was it was huge for me. It, it bought me time to sit next to my wife and got to thank everyone. But then, you know, normally my wife is the one that's so upset that I'm the one that has to rock out all the time and, and be strong. I wasn't so strong. You know, I, I was realizing all of a sudden, minute by minute, I'm not going home to my kids tonight. I'm not going to go back to work tomorrow. Everything's going to change in the matter of hours. Um, and that was getting real. I mean, that was just so like, whew, man, I, I don't know about this. My wife, on the other hand, was super calm. Like, not, I'm glad you're going away calm, but like, we're going to be all right. She put her hand on mine. And she goes, there's someone left for you to meet. There's someone left that needs to meet you. And it was so random and left field, but it made so much sense at the same time that we both just were calm. We didn't cry. We were sad. We were going to miss each other, and we hugged each other, and it was just a bad time. 
but I wouldn't have been able to do it with anyone else. And I know that because of that moment. So I get to prison, you know, we, I go through tons of trouble in prison because of no medicine, no visitation. I, my wife's a co-defendant, so we go two years with no visits or no contact. And it's the most miserable two years of my life. It's, so what can you do? You either thrive on it being miserable and make it worse, or you turn it into something else positive. So I started the book. I, I laid in the hole for 23 and a half hours for 45 days before I went to DOC, and I spent that time to write the book. And I spent... It took me 10 days to get paper and pencil because the officers don't, the, the particular officers always work myself as a big Mexican guy and being racially divided in prison, even it, it crosses lines from COs to inmates. So a big tattooed bald white guy and a big Mexican guy, they're not getting along. He doesn't want to give me paper and pencils and I don't want to be polite about it. So we're battling back and forth. My celly just so happens to be a 20 something year old gang member, Mexican guy. So he speaks Spanish he gets the paper and pencil for me. Him and I build a rapport. He's a, he's a gang member. So we start chatting about my story, and he's like, dude, write it down, man. You need to put that on paper. Now, this little kid, half my age, is like schooling me on why and how and what I should do. So I wrote it, and I read it to him. And by the time I got done with all 12 chapters in those 45 days, he was blown away. Like, man, I, I, I want more. Like, more. I need more. I finished it. I put it all in three envelopes. And it was ironic because the officer that gave me the paper, he battled with me. He kept telling me, like, what are you going to do, write your life story? And he'd only give me two pieces at a time. So we would battle. You take a little Irish spring box of soap, and it holds uh, all your number two golf pencils. Once they're dull, you can't write anymore. So you slide it under the door, and you lay there, and you wait for them to come sharpen them. This cop would kick them over and watch them spill off the second tier onto the floor every day. And all I want to do is write. I don't want to mess with him. I don't want to argue with him. But that, this is the battle. This is what you deal with in there. So the guy, my celly stands up, gets him to give me my pencils back. I finally finished it. And when, as I'm, the, next, the last day I was in county, they, were, they, they roll you up at like 3 in the morning. They say, you're going to DOC. They do it so early so you can't get the bus hit or whatever whatever well the, the officer comes to my door and says martin roll it up i'm like hey i got my my letter i need you to send home and it's in three envelopes and he's laughing like he really did not take me serious like that i really wrote my story as i put it through the bean shoot you know you, you're real close to the door and so is he so we're like eye to eye through this little glass and he reads through and as soon as he felt that envelope you could tell he was totally surprised like this shithead wrote his story. Wow. He sure did. The problem with it is, is he's got to read it. You know, he has to make sure I'm not putting <laughs> contraband in there. So I don't know if he was more mad that I actually wrote it or that he has to actually read it. Wow. So he read it, and uh, about four hours later, um, they come back to hook you up and take you to DOC. And as he put my belly chains on, he asked me to lift my leg, cuff me up. When my leg went up, he goes, damn good book, man. He went to put my left cuff on, and I go, what? And he didn't respond. He would not respond the rest of the morning as I'm trying to talk to him. Like, he didn't want no one else to know that he actually read it or enjoyed it. But uh, he did. And at that moment, I knew that this book's more than just a counseling session on the floor of a prison cell. This is a momentum. This is a movement. And honestly, it's some uplifting words that it might just land in your lap at the right time. Mm -hmm. I think that just the story alone is uplifting. I think just the adversity that you had to go through just to even get the book done, that alone is inspiring. So I can't even imagine what's on the inside yeah. because 
if you look at all of the excuses that we as people are able to make on a daily basis why we can't get anything done, you had every excuse in the book. You, as a grown man, couldn't even just walk and get a piece of paper. Like, what type of tools or what type of mentality or what did you have that made you say, you know what, I don't care what I have to go through, but this is getting done? Well, honestly, I got to chalk it up to being in group homes as a kid. You know, I left home at nine, and that's where my book starts. Um, my mom was uh, a young single mom. She was abused herself when she grew up. Um, I definitely not making excuses, but you know, drugs and alcohol were involved. Men were involved. I mean, it was just a bad deal all the way around. Uh, I can't pick and choose my mom, so I'll never blame her ever. It's just a circumstance that we both survived. It's something that we both made it through. I just felt like I needed to put it on paper. So other people who have been in that spot know that they're not alone. It's all that cliche stuff that you can get help. But it's also to let you know that you don't have to be stuck there. You don't have to sit there and be in the same lane that everyone else classifies you in. I've heard it my whole life. That's why I do this, is to show them that we're not all the same. We're all different. We're all going to go about it differently and handle it differently. I just don't like getting told no. I don't like getting told no or, or that I can't. I, you're never going to or, man, bring it. You know what I mean? <laughs> what do you, so you said that you felt like your message was and, and your purpose was bigger than you. What do you feel like now that you've, uh, now that you've had time to let your brain settle? You, you know, you are where you are. What do you think your message is? Well, you know, my message right now is to continue this word and this walk. I started a nonprofit since I've come home, zonkamiles.org, and that is a twofold nonprofit, 503C, 513C. It is for two things. Um, part of, I, I love writing and I love reading. It's a good way of counseling, but it's also a way of passing information and education. So one of the books I wrote in prison that hasn't been published yet, but is coming in July, it's uh, Prison for Profit Through the Eyes of an Inmate. And it really just opens the eyes of people who aren't affiliated with prison, never been to prison, or aren't affected by it directly, or don't know they are. So I really just want to try to bridge that gap and show people, like, there, there's a lot of uh, information out there that we just don't understand, you know. We didn't wake up and have 40,000 more criminals over a two-year time frame, and all of a sudden they need to be locked in a cage. You know, there, there, there's a problem here with the system. When prisons can be restructured as real estate investment trusts and you can trade them publicly on the stock market, a crime against humanity has been committed and a federal lawsuit needs to be filed immediately. Mm -hmm. That's my message. My momentum, along with the, the .org, is also for kids that are in the system. You know, I was a kid that turned 18, and once you're 18, you're an adult. You're not their problem anymore. They say, get out, go. Thank God I had common sense, could sell dope and make some money on the side and survive. That's a one percenter kind of thing in my mind because you don't see that very often. Kids don't make it through that stuff. So the .org is really about helping those kids have a place and a program to come home to and understand that they're going to be able to transition into adult society without being let go, without being forgotten. Because really, we're grooming them for that prison system. You know, if you think about children today, they go and they get a loan for college. All they're doing is creating a burden. Technically, financially, they're creating that burden. But we make it profitable for them to go to prison and lay in a bed space. And that makes us money. Mm -hmm. We're broken.
we're, we're, we're extremely broken. <laughs> and it's so funny that this system has been able to run this way for so long. When you look at, one, the fact that prisons are privatized, that alone should be illegal. Mm-hmm. The fact that prisons are getting paid for every single inmate, mm-hmm. that right there should be illegal. Absolutely. The fact that they can overcrowd mm-hmm. a prison, so they're getting money on top of yep. money, that right there should be illegal. When we look at a place like Finland, yeah. they have, I believe, it's like the highest reform percentage of any Absolutely. other country. Their prisons actually change right. every single inmate that goes Absolutely. in there. The American system only, it only, um, in a way, it, it traps us in the system, but then it programs it us in a different Absolutely. way. So, America has so many different types of programming. They have the school programming where you go and you get the corporate job. They have the criminal programming where you become in a criminal mind. They have the poverty programming Mm -hmm. where you stay in this impoverished mind where you need the government funding. So they've learned how to program through all of this. And you've been a victim of that. Is there any part of you that feels a little scared fighting it? Knowing the power that they have. Yeah, absolutely. We're scared every day. I mean, I'd be an idiot and a liar if I sat here and said, oh, no, we're cool. I mean, I just had fed season packages of my hemp products two weeks ago after the farm bill passed. You know, it's and the main reason all that stuff happens is because we're all sheep. We don't take the time to read the 1,100-page hemp bill. And it's because they know we won't. They write 1,100 pages because they know we're not going to look at it. We're going to read the title and say, oh, legalized hemp bill. Awesome. I vote for it. And then when you get into it and you realize that page 660 and 661 are the only two pages that mention hemp, there's a problem. And then look at it a little bit like this, too. I travel all over and speak. And I don't only speak about my story, but I speak about laws. I speak about good laws and bad laws. I just went to Utah talking about Prop 2. I learned a lot. I think I learned more in two days in Utah about what is coming down the pike with this hemp bill and and national legalization. We should all be scared. What is Prop 2? Prop 2 is the cannabis law in Utah, the medical cannabis law that they passed. Um, I was asked to come speak good, bad, and different on either side. I didn't feel like I could do that properly because, one, I'm not from Utah. I'd only read the bill, and that was it. So I did some research. I wanted to check out who's the players, who's involved. Well, it was ironic because at the same time, you had two big things happening. Coca-Cola throwing their hat in the game saying, hey, we want to get involved in cannabis and make drinks. Canadian money was backing them to do that. Well, then all of a sudden, the Mormon church said, hey, well, what do you know? CBD's good for us. John Smith told, told me just today that, this is good. So our whole nation is going to back this. I don't know about you, but that smacked me in the face as red flag right away. Like, what are we doing? Well, GW Pharmaceutical is the company that has pushed this Epidiolex CBD through at the federal level and caused it to lower to a, a Schedule 5, but only for them. So another red flag, right? I'm sitting there thinking, like, how is this all tying together? What does this mean? Well, honestly, if you look at it, GW Pharmaceutical hired all the ex-CEOs from Coca-Cola to run their hemp product. This, this law has allowed for the DEA not to be in control anymore, and the FDA is. Mm. So the FDA steps in and tries to criminalize the fact that you're putting it in food. Because what they say is it can't have THC, right? Well, what products don't have THC? Isolate, right? 
But isolate in their law is deemed a chemical extraction, not a botanical. So it's illegal. Mm. But if you read the bill, the bill states you can use this stuff legally in hemp, cannabidiol on hemp, but it doesn't mention the THC. So it's a play on words. You're going to read it as, wait, this supports, this is good. But if you don't read between the lines or the words that are missing, they can come back and flip it on you. And that's exactly what they're doing to all of us. I couldn't figure out why I've been in business for eight years and not have one package seized. Hint bill gets passed. I have two seized. I have a letter sent to me by the criminal investigations unit of the USPS. Now, we've got law-setting precedent stating you can't use smell of my packets to steal my hemp products as probable cause. It's been determined in a courtroom. So we've submitted this to the USPS. We've still not received our packets back. We've still not received a letter of why they've taken our packets. It's just our way of bullying us because nobody stands up and fights. We get separated to where we feel we have to do this on our own because if we group together, we're going to get burned. And look what happens. We can't fight alone. I can't fight the feds. I don't have the pockets, the time, or the power. There's just no way. But they're wrong, and we know they're wrong. And if we come in, you know, head steam, full of power as a big group, we can prove it. We can show them. It's just everyone has to get over that fear. They have to get over that being scared and turn it into that power we talk yeah. about and use it as passion and fight them. I think it's hard for people. <laughs> you know, people like, and I say us, because I was awarded the court. My mother was addicted to drugs. I had never met my father, so I had to live with my grandmother. Then I got adopted by my aunt. And then so I've been, yeah. I, I was fortunate that I didn't get sent to a group home, yeah. but I'm still like this floater, yeah. you know, so I never really had felt like I had a home, but something inside of me, one, it kind of like removed fear. Yeah. And I don't fear anything. Yeah, you get numb to it. You get numb to it. And you realize that that fear isn't even real. Yeah. And anytime that I do have fear, I, I use it to propel me. Right. If there's some fear here, then that means that this is something that I probably should be doing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's not the gut feeling we're about to do something stupid, right. but it's the adrenaline feeling yeah. and things like that. But people haven't experienced that. Do you know how many people would have never touched cannabis again if they would have went to jail for three years for a <laughs> joint? Yeah. Do you know how many people would have never even touched cannabis again had they got raided, spent two years in jail? You're fighting it. So that's some strength that that's very hard to emulate and it's very hard to mm -hmm. share. And it's what I've been trying to do and, and get a group of people. But I think that when people hear your story and they see what you've gone through, then they can see, oh, he isn't any different because... What person can be in a situation where someone's kicking the pens over and it's taking them 10 days to get paper and they still come out strong enough to do everything that they said that they wanted to do and not only do that, but help others in the same situation? I had so many that relied on me. I had so many that depended on what I did, not just patients or friends or family or employees, but family. I mean, I'm a dad of five. I've got a grandbaby. And uh, I grew up like you did, you know, and none of us want to repeat that. Uh, the one goal in my life has been break that chain, mm -hmm. break that cycle. You know, my kid will never know what a group home was. He'll never know what foster care is. He'll never hopefully know what the inside of a courtroom looks like, at least on the juvenile end. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 
I think that's that passion. That's I want everyone else to feel that. I mm-hmm. want everyone else to have that same drive. And man, I wish it was contagious. If there was one thing I could change in the world, is I wish that that love and that compassion were contagious. I wish I could just touch somebody's shoulder and pass that on and avoid you know three years in prison and a crazy mm-hmm. story to try to do it. It just doesn't work like that. You know, it just it really does not. I I thank you for having a platform like this because. This helps avoid a prison sentence or or having to go through crazy stuff for some that get to hear it. And mm-hmm. I think that's what it's about is, is, is uh, networking and, and sharing uh, testimony and fellowshipping together, whether it's spiritually driven or not. That doesn't matter in, in my heart. Um, it's really about the love. It's really mm-hmm. about, you know, my hashtags, haters make me famous. And everyone knows that that's where I come from. But everything I've ever done has come from love. Mm-hmm. You know, the haters part of it is, the fact that I just continually piss the same people off, you know, or larger groups, you know, who knows? I, I just look at it now, though. It, we're not going to stop or change who we are right. or where we come from because they want to scare us. And, and, and not to mention, man, I'm raising men. Hmm. I've got some men at home that I want to, to remain men and caring, loving, compassionate men, not just hard-headed, chest-stuck-out, you know, uh, a stubborn men. Mm-hmm. I want them to be... Uh, a little bit better of a man than I was when I, I got into all this. So maybe they can avoid a lot of this together and help us conquer this prohibition thing now. And and I think that they will. And you said something, and I agreed with you. You're like, I wish I could touch people and it's contagious. And I often wish that too. And then as I'm thinking that, something in my head is like, it's not supposed to be contagious. Because what you have is a mental liberation, that a lot of people do not have. You had to earn that. You had to go through some things to break yourself from mental chains, from a societal point of view that was pushed, that was pushed upon you and forced. You had to go through a lot of things to break this condition, thinking that most yes. people do not want to do. Yeah. They don't want to get out of the bubble. They like to stay in the matrix. And you earn that. You had to be forced out of the matrix. You were on your way, (laughs) clear cut, college kid, about to play baseball. You were, you were on your way. You were, you were ingrained, and then something pulled you right out and was like, "Hold up!" And you're doing a whole lot of things to prevent your kids from experiencing. And I feel like that's a lot of things that that happen with people who grow up with trauma. It does one of two things: either you're going to repeat it, or you're going to do such the opposite to your kids that they will never ever know what it was like i want to know what you're doing now i know you own so much stuff but let's let the people know because this table (laughs) besides the raw yogi this table is all you so what are you doing now oh man i am honestly blessed this is i I want to consider myself the johnny c johnny apple seed of weed one day i i just love gifting i love giving and i love helping patients feel better um that's Hence why we got into the jam. I donated more meds than I probably should have, and some people were pissed. So now, when I went to jail, um, I had a message. I had a plan. I had a vision the whole time. I I corporately structured myself um, in such a way that I could form deals with each entity separately. So I took Hemphill Farms. I made it my corporation. I separated everything else out underneath it. And I, I tried to build a plan that kept my family alive. Uh, I got really lucky. Uh, a public company called American Green 
stayed in touch with me through my whole incarceration. They loved my branding and drive and passion, but they also had a grow. They had a license and a grow, and they wanted me to help take it over. So I put together a team, and this is the product of our first harvest of what we've taken down since I've come home. Mm. Um, these are four or five different strains of the Zonka lineage that we have been seed banking for many, many years for this opportunity. And now it's it's real. It's one of those things, like you said, you speak it, you say it, it happens. And we made it happen. I, I can honestly tell you, I, I got out of prison February 15th, two years ago. Mm. I did not see this in the future. <laughs> Man. I was just hoping to make it out of the halfway house. You could have smelled it in the future. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now uh, I am project manager of American Greens Grow. They have a 12,000 square foot grow. Um, we sell to dispensaries. We're um, listed in 30 different dispensaries in Arizona now. Uh, our key is boutique. Uh, I'm trying not to massacre a bunch of crap. Our state's full of that. Uh, we really just want to bring boutique style quality flour to patients at an affordable cost i mean i everyone does the great stuff but then they charge a lot my goal is to be able to give out half of all the rso that we produce legally um as long as that goes by state law and we aren't breaking anything then that's exactly what we plan to do mm -hmm. um my my key i'd give it all away if it were up to me but we all have overhead and expenses and all that other stuff too we just don't want to be the typical outfit that's out here to make a bunch of money off of everyone and then run out of here i mean this is my state i helped build this here so me being the guy that always fought against dispensary and fought against ada and all the rules and all that stuff and now to be kind of on both sides of the the line for me it's it's a ability and a way for me to bridge that gap it's a way for me to hopefully end some of the ambiguity and fix some of this stuff you know what i mean my goal honestly is home grow for everybody i think everyone's able to grow this like it's made a plant in their backyard mm. Honestly, that, that's where I'm at. But if I got to use the dispensary to get my education and my message out there, then that's what I'm going to do. It's the same thing I did with the VFW and we were doing the farmer's markets back in the day. So, I mean, it's really about the patient at the end of the day. It's about the person that's sick. Um, so now we've done, not only do we have this, but we're waiting on our certification for our kitchen. So the Zonka edible line that I went to prison for six years ago will relaunch back in the state. And we are so excited about that. I mean, uh, I haven't made a candy bar in six years and I'm still getting five-star reviews. So it tells me the demands there that people are dying to have this good product back on the shelf. Um, we were one of the first solventless products. I didn't do BHO or hell. We didn't even have fractional distillation back before I went to prison. So, I mean, literally we were key candy bars and, uh, you know, activated hash and just, you know, we're, we're going to bring back some solventless stuff that, that I don't think the state is, uh, had a lot of experience with yet, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm hoping that we just grow it. We can continue to grow from there. My cafe, we reopened the Hempful Farms Cafe on February 1st. Um, that was the cafe I had open, and then I got sentenced to prison, and we had to close it. So we're back in action. Um, we've opened three retail stores, one in Chico, California, one in Los Lunas, New Mexico, and here in Phoenix. And now there's a potential. We might have another one in Cave Creek and another one in Youngstown. Mm -hmm. Those are the two locations that we have property that we're looking at. So... Right now, it's um, we had to choose. Are we going to try to get our products on everybody else's shelves? Or are we just going to build our shelves? Right. So, you know, I, I've gone with the, the, the latter as of late. I, I kind of like having my own shelves. I, I don't have to jump through hoops and, and argue with anyone if they think somebody else's stuff is better or not. I mean... I can carry what I want to carry, and I can actually consult for free. I'm so sick of seeing all these $20 classes, $100 programs, 50 Man, Google some shit, would you? Mm -hmm. Like, read a book, 
crawl out from under a rock, look some stuff up, or come to Hempful because I sit there and consult all day, every day for free. Like this is this is stuff that everyone needs to know about. And and you speak about this because you have actually used cannabis to heal yourself. Yes, You're not just a person who loves the plant. Right. You speak about it and you use the word patient. And you use it in a way that means something because you know all of the healing properties and all of the healing potentials that this plant has. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about how you were able to do that just with the plant. Sure. I'm on a heavy regiment of RSO, um, Rick Simpson oil. Mm-hmm. We make RSO in the shop. Um, this stuff is m- my life. This is uh, the first sign of remission that I knew anything about. I have, I was about six weeks shy of a surgery and a colostomy bag. I started taking RSO heavily uh, up to a gram a day. And now it's been eight years and I take a gram every day. I don't miss it. Uh, this is how I keep from throwing up, nauseous, bleeding. Um, and I'd like to, con- I mean, I have flare ups. I still have bad days. You know, if I eat the wrong thing, if I want to have a steak or a salad or something done, then then I suffer. Um, but I, I would never make it without it. Out of all of the narcotics and pharmaceuticals I was put on, there was not one item that allowed me to eat, sleep, not throw up, not diarrhea, not, you know, nothing but this. Mm-hmm. So for me, I just, it's time to end the madness. You know what I mean? It's a plant-based organic alternative. You don't have to smoke it to support it. You don't have to use it to understand what it does for other people. Mm-hmm. You know. So what's a day like before you did the RSO? Oh. And then what's a day like after the RSO, like with the symptoms yeah. and stuff? Before the RSO, it's uh, just picture food poisoning meets the flu. <sighs> and it pops up out of nowhere. So like you will be sitting talking. I turn white, gray, very translucent. Uh, I get very peaked, uh, I'll flush, I'll start sweating. It looks like I'm going to get sick. And then in five minutes, it goes away. Or I spend two hours in the bathroom. It's just, uh, there was really no control. There was really no way to fight it. The balasalicide is nine, 750 milligram pills a day. And it does nothing but bloat every one of your organs and cause so much pain that you can't get out of bed. Mm. Humera is like chemo. I mean, it's... It strips your body of all of the fighting power against real disease. So once I found this, I mean, honestly, it put me on my ass. I, I, I'm a, a smoker from way back, but you eat a gram of RSO unsuspecting, and you're face down, palms up for a few hours. You wake up in another area, like, what in the world? But now, honestly, I would take that much to go to work. I take that. I haven't been high in 15 years. Like, I couldn't tell you the last time I got stoned. Um, I get normal. I get balanced. I get healthy. That, that's how I use it. So now without it, it's more of what happens when I miss it. Mm. If I miss a day, oh, man, last night I forgot my meds. I was tired. 8 o'clock. I've passed out. 12.30. Shot straight up out of bed violently. Both sides running to the bathroom because I missed it. I missed one dose. And literally it's like the you wake up with food poisoning. Like how do you wake up and just have to mm. vomit immediately? That's not normal. That's like I couldn't make it there, but if I have my medicine, I wake up at six thirty. I work out, and it's normal day. I just it's something that will always be a part of my regiment, and there isn't a person in the world that I'm afraid to show it to. Mm. 
And for the people out there who don't really know, RSO was created by Rick Simpson and he had skin cancer and he developed this, put it on his skin cancer and he started to notice that it started to go away and he pretty much healed himself through this RSO, which he called Rick Simpson oil. Now they use the term full spectrum oil because I don't think you can, I don't know, you can't use his name. I mean, obviously, and a lot of people swear by it. My first experience with it, it's actually my only experience so far, but uh, my father, he got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And, you know, I'm doing my research trying to figure out what can I help. You know, he's in extreme pain. So I come across the RSO oil. I go to a dispensary, get it for him, and he starts to take it every single day. And up until the day that he passed, he didn't have to take his pain meds. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. He didn't. All he took was the RSO. We got him some fresh vitamins. And, and the stuff. doctors were baffled. I bet he was on hospice, mm-hmm. so he wasn't seeing any doctors. So you it, know, it sounds so familiar. My wife's father passed away from brain cancer, had seven tumors in hospice, and his nurse would come visit him because he he I had to carry him because of where the tumors were, he couldn't speak anymore, and um, they're all Catholic. So me putting cannabis in anything is a no no. Not to mention the uncle that he lived with was a 30-year Maricopa sheriff. So as kids, we always had cologne and gum, and we never smoked around them. We hid everything. So I start putting, I tell my wife, hey, look, Mama, you know what I'm going to do. I'm doping up your pop. I'm going to drug your dad. And, and uh, I mean, honestly, what else can you do? He's in hospice. He's not going to be here much longer. So we start giving him the RSO, and all of a sudden, he can change the channel. He can pick up his coffee mug and drink his coffee. You say his name and he responds. He looks to your, your area of the room, responding to your voice. And everyone's noticing. Everyone's, me and Andy are the only ones who know that this is happening. So George, Uncle George, comes in and realizes, man, this guy's really responding. I think he starts watching what we're doing without us realizing it. About a week into it, I get a call from Uncle George. And he says, hey, Chris, I need to chat with you. You need to come out here. Mind you, I'm on bond. I'm still fighting my case. Uh, I assume he could violate me. I mean, if he wanted to, he could arrest me right here and have me thrown in jail. So I, I get there, and George calls me outside, and he says, you know, son, I know that oil that you're putting in his drink. I know what you're doing. And I just froze. I mean, literally, I didn't know whether to cry or just run. He can't catch me. He's 70. He will never catch me. And he says, don't stop what you're doing. I see what it's done for Danny. I see what it's done for my brother. My baby brother can talk. He can hear. He can listen. So then when the the, the um, hospice nurse comes back the next day, she's like, Danny, are you sure you're not in any pain? Like, I swear, you know, everyone with the same symptom or same scenario has tons of pain. And that's all the brain surgeons kept saying is, I cannot believe we do not have to give this guy all these drugs. And Danny's just sitting there grinning and waving. And he don't, he's oblivious, but he's not in pain. And it's all the RSO. It's all the RSO. And it's natural. It's a plant and it's natural it's That's a it. plant and it grows you t- speaking of that tell us a little bit about Hempful Farms yeah Hempful Farms was created in 2012 so after I got raided you know everything hit the fan we didn't know how to even pay rent I didn't even know how I was going to feed my family I uh, half a million dollar forfeiture lost everything I walk out of jail with a trash bag full of clothes and uh, I don't know where to go I don't I don't know what to do so I start selling the last bit of property that the cops didn't seize. I had a, a 67 Comet that I had hidden, and I had a Harley that was hidden. I started selling it just to get some money so I could get a house of something for my family. 
And a, uh, a guy on Craigslist calls me up and says, hey, I want the motorcycle. I live in Phoenix. So I have 50 bucks to my name. If I don't sell this Harley, I can't even drive back up the hill. Screw it. Let's take the chance. I mean, I can't sell if I don't go. And I told Andy, if I don't come home tonight, I'll be sleeping on the highway. I won't have money. We drove down the high. I got down to Phoenix, and the kid comes out, and they didn't even start the bike. He just hands me the cash. I'm like, you don't want to. I mean, it's a good bike. I'm not going to burn you, but I've never seen someone just buy it without starting. And he's like, we don't care about the bike. My dad's a hemp farmer. and He followed your story. He knows all about everything you've been through, and he wants to help you. He's got CBD oil, and he thinks he could get you going on a product line. And I just started laughing, like, great, another crook, another somebody trying to rip me off. or you know, I was just so paranoid of everybody, uh, which is a really shitty way to live, just scared of everybody. You, you don't sleep very well. You don't have very many friends. Everyone thinks you got 5,000 friends on Facebook, but none of them are real. You know what I mean? So me and the guy sit down, and we chat a little bit, and he brings me the oil, and I taste it and try it, and I'm like, I don't know if I believe him, like, this is back when CBD was nothing. Nobody really knew anything about it. So we took it. We tested it. We played with it. We created the same lotion, lip balm, and, and oil product that I did with Zonka under the cannabis line. I just copied it, and I called it weedless, and I spelled it like seedless with the big S and everything. I just, I'm a parody company, Wonka, Zonka. That's what I do. So I did that. I came out, and I'm working as a head chef over at Crust on Tatum and Bell. My wife had to get, go back to work as an RN, driving up the hill to Prescott every day. Miserable. We're, we're miserable. We're barely making ends meet. And I started putting the weedless line on on the internet, on the website. All of a sudden, my phone is going crazy at work. I'm, here I am running a line with six guys on it, and my phone, literally 50 orders, 50 orders, 50 orders. Are you kidding me? I'm telling Andy, like, babe, I'm going to quit my job. What do you mean you're going to quit your job? You're the only one making money. You got a $50,000 job and we're going to court that you're going to get sentenced that and you might not come home. You can't quit your job. And I said, I have to. I can't fulfill these orders if I stay at work. We're going to forget. We're going to lose these orders and lose customers. So we started pumping these orders out. Uh, I quit my job. I walked out, went home, started making these orders. And uh, we were invited to go on a show called The Marijuana Show. It's like Shark Tank for cannabis. Well, I think they knew my story, but didn't want to let on that I they knew I was on bail because maybe they not want to get involved or maybe we wouldn't want to get involved. So we drove to Colorado to pitch our products on this Shark Tank-style show, and they chose us to be on the show. But then I got sentenced to prison. So my son and my daughter, or my I'm sorry, my wife and my son had to pitch the pitch deck and the performa to these million-dollar investors in Denver, Colorado while I'm sitting in jail. And then come home and close, decide to close the cafe because I'm gone, because they can't run it. So they really, it was just such a, a cluster. We really did, it, the way we came about even getting the kitchen was a, a feat in itself. We had an investor from Kentucky call. They saw my branding for Weedless. We had just swapped it to Hempful Farms because of the Seedless brand. I like those guys. They're good friends, and I didn't want to piss them off. So I changed my branding from Weedless to Hempful, and I left Weedless just as my vape line, my smokable line under the hemp brand. So now we're Hempful Farms. We, we have this full production line, and the investors call and say, hey, look, you got a great brand. You got a great product. We want to see what you do. Let's come check it out. And I looked at my wife like, oh, I got millionaires that want to come in our living room and watch us make lip balm. We can't show them we make a lip balm in our house. So I get on Craigslist. I rent a kitchen. I tell this landlord, hey, can I borrow your kitchen for a catering job? I just need it for the weekend. 
I'll pay you cash up front. He's like, cool. So I go in there and I fake it. I literally, I set this whole place up like we're a full-scale production facility. And as I'm walking through, it looks like a cafe. I mean, it's set up for, there was no business model. There was no plan. I just said, you know what? We're going to do breakfast, lunch, juices, smoothies, coffees. It's all going to be hip infused. And the investors are falling out of their chairs. Like, oh my God, that's amazing. No one's ever done that. We need to do that. Here's a hundred grand for 20%. Bam, done. That quick. We had an investment. Hempful Farms opened up, and and very few people knew that the whole time I was fighting for my life, mm. that I was facing 127 years through that whole struggle, that whole battle. So when it came time to sentence, my wife had to decide, what do I do, babe? I don't want to fail you. I don't want to close the, the cafe and have you think that I couldn't do it, but I, I got to pay rent. So I said, take the products and go home. Go back to where we started. That uh, At least you know you'll have enough money coming in to take care of yourself. And I'll finish the rest from prison. I'm going to make a, a game plan, and I'm going to write you letters every day. And if it works, it works. If not, we still have each other. And Hemphill closed. I, I'll never forget. It was the Sunday before my sentencing on Monday. And I remember locking the door, looking at the cafe, knowing in my heart that it was the last time that I was going to be the, in that building. I just knew it. I, it's a sad feeling. It's a very tough feeling when you built it with your bare hands, mm. and you're going to not come back and never see it again. But... My wife always had that feeling there was something bigger, and she always kept me going. So now we are flash forward. I came home in uh, 2015, February. I came, I got out, and within six weeks, we had established a property that we were going to turn into our, our retail spot. Um, uh, and immediately, it was manufacturing and retail. Uh, we've decided to do the cafe over the last six weeks just out of demand. People want the cafe back and me i love what we do retail's great you know chef is really hard work it's a lot of overhead and a lot of hours and but we have a really good brand we have a really good product and i'm the chef too so i know what the menu is i know what the products are um i just feel like we've hit on a business model and a plan that is vertically integrated and can best reach every patient from every avenue possible. Mm. Not just from personal experience to tangible product to edible food to storyline. I mean, you name it. You walk into our place and it's the experience. It's not just, oh, cool, another retail shop. No, you come in and we got a vending machine that is state of the art that nobody else has ever touched. Food that's infused. Products we make in-house that we test, that we farm. That's the best part of it. We're in control. We run it all. So no matter how big these MLMers are or these big corporate guys are, we stay the same. That's awesome. We are out of time. And I wish that we weren't <laughs> because you're probably one of the most interesting people I've interviewed <laughs> in such a quite long time. And I still have so many questions, so many things I want to touch on. We didn't even touch on your cooking show, which is probably <laughs> one of my favorite things about you. So we have to do this again. Uh, he has a cooking show where he's cooking with inmate food. It's the craziest thing. Convicted creation. I'm, I'm going to put all of that stuff in the show notes for people so that they can have a link to it. Where can they get your book? Uh, right now we have a, a website. It's the chrismartinstory.com. And you can purchase this book, One Life, or you can also pre-purchase our pre-order our cookbooks. We have the Hemp Chef coming out, and we have the Convicted Creation cookbook coming out. Uh, they're both available on the ChrisMartinStory.com and HempfulFarms.com. Everybody. Give it up for Chris Martin. That was awesome, man. I'm going to put everything in the show notes. We're probably going to get super high again. 
I forgot a whole lot of questions, <laughs> but we have to do this again awesome. because I am gripped. I need to talk to you some more. <laughs> uh, thank you Thanks so much for, for coming, man. Thank you. I appreciate you very much. That's it for this week's episode, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to check out all the links, subscribe to all the outlets, and leave comments letting me know what you think. Once again, this episode is ad-free thanks to all of you who have supported my company, Raw Yogi. I cannot thank you enough. If you are looking for an awesome new vegan line, then make sure you go to rawyogibrand.com. If you're a listener of this podcast, then you will get a great discount on your first order. Isn't that nice? Promo code, like always, will be in the notes. Again, thank you so much, and I will see you next week.